0: This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. Value Hive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at Ticker.com forward slash Hive. That's T-I-K-R.com forward slash Hive. All right, guys. I have the privilege of chatting with Ben Gordon. He is the founder and head portfolio manager at Blue Grotto Capital, which is an interesting name, and that's something I want to kind of get get your thoughts on before we dive in. But this podcast is going to be a deep dive into Ben's process, how he got started investing at GM, or how he got started at Blue Grotto, his prior work at GMT, and all throughout his process we're talking research funnel for identify for identifying ideas how to get to key issues uh we might touch on shorting hopefully if we get a chance and then waiting for the stars to align to find a really good investment idea Um, i'm stoked to have ben on the show and we've been trying to get him on for a little bit now and it's going to be great so ben thanks so much for coming on
1: thanks for having me appreciate it
0: (laughs) so what's the story behind blue grotto
1: um you mean the name or just the, yeah, I guess we'll start.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The name.
1: (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, when I decided to start a hedge fund, you'd be shocked how many hedge funds there are in the world (laughs) and how hard it is (laughs) to come up with a name that is not taken. Um, I backpacked across Europe, uh, when I got out of college and, one of my favorite places was Capri, Italy, and we uh, we went cliff diving off um, off the cliffs into the water uh, in Capri, and swam into the Blue Grotto. And um, it also happens to be, you know, Blue Grotto is BG, which is also Ben Gordon. Uh, so, oh, okay, there's yeah. the <laughs> double entendre there. Um, so. Yeah, that was that was the thought, and it, it just sort of, you know, I picked a place I liked because every every hedge fund name that has any meaning is sort of already taken.
0: Yeah, and it's also, I mean, usually you've got like, you know, something rock, something water, right? Something, you know, every everything's some sort of geometrical earth, wind, fire based name.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's that random hedge fund. Name or on the internet, you can go on. Actually, oh, really? <laughs> actually, played around with that. Uh, funny enough, but anyway,
0: <laughs> that's awesome. So, walk us through how you got started in investing. I know you know Blue Grotto obviously isn't the first iteration of your uh, dive into the investment world. So, take us through, you know, how you started, and then we can walk right into your time at GMT.
1: Yeah. So, um, I started my career. Um, well, you know, I I went to Ohio University. Um, was an intern for the Joint Economic Committee of Congress when I was in college. Um, that helped me get in the door at uh, Raymond James, where I worked in equity research for four years, uh, starting in 2001. Uh, in 2005, I always knew I wanted to be on the buy side, um, and not the sell side. Uh, but you know. I think Raymond James was a great place to learn the business and sort of get an understanding of how Wall Street works. Um but you know, I had throughout college I had been reading every investment book known to man um up until then. And so um that was sort of my inspiration um was to potentially be a a portfolio manager one day. So I found, um, a role at GMT Capital as an analyst in 2005. Um, so I worked under a PM, uh, at GMT for three years as an analyst, um, was, uh, so I was an analyst from 05 to 08 at GMT Capital. Uh, in 08, I was promoted to portfolio manager, um, was, uh, running the largest portfolio at GMT Capital mm. outside of the founder from 08 to 2018. And uh, also was um, tasked with being the head of our European office. Um, so I was I sort of had a dual role of managing uh, mainly a TMT portfolio at GMT and also being a generalist uh, who Basically coached uh, the PMs in London that we had, um, so that's that's a quick background of sort of how I uh, progressed in the investment business. And obviously we we launched Blue Grotto Capital in at the beginning of 2019, and uh, so that's that's my background.
0: Yeah, I mean it sounds like just from that story, you know, obviously there's a lot of hours put in, but your roles at GMT followed almost like an exponential curve where, you know, you started it and then you were grinding your way. And then, you know, the overnight in quotes went from, you know, the analyst to managing the second most amount of money compared to, I guess what the principal founder um, or something like that. What, what made you specifically get to that point? Was there anything that you did differently than other analysts? Cause clearly, you know, there's an element of you being smarter than a lot of other people in the room at that point, but, there's got to be something that you thought that you did better than anyone else to get to that point.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, um, as both an analyst and a portfolio manager, the thing that stands out about myself relative to other people I've worked with in the past is I'm very creative. Hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of creativity involved, especially if you have this uh, mandate to be global and you can do almost anything um, yep. in investing. The, having that blank sheet gives you a lot of room for creativity. Um, and you know, I came up with very creative ideas as an analyst and that sort of continued as a portfolio manager Luckily, you know, I was given a lot of rope. I had great mentors at GMT and, you know, that um, allowed me to be creative and find really interesting ideas.
0: So maybe you can talk to us about one of those interesting ideas that were creative. I mean, I know that we've got two, but would would Reply and then Smurf at Kappa fall into that category of those creative type ideas?
1: Yeah. so those those came later as a pm As, as as an analyst um my biggest investment at the time on the long side was um a lot of emerging market wireless carriers so right you know when i when i came into gmt um there was this incredible setup i thought so um we had seen by 2005 that wireless followed this adoption curve where once you hit 20% penetration of, um, of adoption in the US and Europe, you started to head up the steep part of an S curve.
0: Hmm.
1: And so, you know, the businesses in wireless in the US and Europe had taken off. And, you know, you also had this technology cost curve that was driving down the cost of handsets in emerging markets, and also drove down the cost of the carrier's ability to um, deploy telecom equipment. Uh, Huawei was emerging at that time. Uh, Nokia was driving the cost of handsets down. Um, So, you know, the setup was, you know, you're hitting 20% penetration in a lot of emerging markets, the cost of admission for the consumer was coming down dramatically. And, um, you know, there's huge pent-up demand for just basic telecom services in these markets. Mm -hmm. And if you actually traveled to, like, for instance, I traveled to Colombia and, you know, all over South America, you know, the pervasiveness of the brands uh, these companies had uh i mean it was more pervasive than coca-cola in a lot of cases wow so so and and meanwhile you know the setup was you had the tmt bust and a lot of emerging market carriers were still trading very cheaply at the time you know we were buying these companies at five times ebitda and ten times earnings so and they started growing you know 60 70 percent and some. wow in some cases. So, you know, that was the setup that really got me from mm-hmm. analyst to PM. Um, the names you mentioned, you know, Reply and Smurfit Kappa, Smurfit Kappa um, kind of illustrates one concept. Um, whenever I invest in cyclicals, I'm very soap focused on the supply uh, In the market, and not the demand. Mm. Um, When we invested in Smurfit, you know the corrugated business was going through a mild downturn because there was this European financial crisis in 2012, Um, Mm -hmm. and so. um, But if you if you added up the supply of all the corrugated makers, it was down significantly more than demand was. So, you know, we thought that on the other end, uh, when demand rebounded, and frankly, you know, corrugated is a fairly stable uh, demand profile anyway. Um, You know, on the other end of that, we thought uh, Smurfit would have significant pricing power. And Smurfit, because of the European crisis at the time, uh, it was a little bit levered, it was four turns leverage at the time. Hmm and um so the stock got down to like five times trough earnings or something like that (laughs) and uh and so but but you know coming out of the crisis they were able to raise pricing they were able to refinance their debt and and it's a very good cash flow business as well so you know this stock went from four i think it's 40 today um wow and then, you know, another um, way we generated ideas at GMT, we ran regressions on every market globally. Right. Um, and
0: what do you mean by that, just for those that may not know?
1: Yeah. So um, actually, GMT based its long short ratio on these regressions, too. Um, and all the regressions were, were price, basically, a, a regression of historical prices. Um, GMT based its long-short ratio on uh, the the history of the S and P, Nasdaq, and Russell, hmm. and you know it, it would there'd be you know a huge band where prices can trade uh, from a market perspective, but where I think it got really interesting was you know when a market traded to two-plus standard deviations cheap versus its history. Generally, that illustrated that, you know, there was potential for mean reversion that we didn't always... Um, you have to like the businesses involved and think that there's some bottoms-up thesis on a business, um, to use these regressions, but, you know, at the time, in 2012 and 2013 uh you know people were using the acronym pigs for uh portugal italy uh greece and spain Mm -hmm. and um so you know those markets were super out of favor um for good reason i mean there was a considerable recession in a lot of those markets but um you know so but But the regressions indicated that the stocks were super cheap in those markets. So if we could find a business we really liked in Italy or Spain or any of these markets, um, there was that potential for considerable mean reversion. And so that's how we stumbled upon uh, Reply SPA in Italy. Um, So they're a, a consultant slash business process outsourcing company. Um, you know, we did a lot of, uh, screens in Italy at the time because of this regressions and Reply stood out because they had grown even through the, uh, recession in Italy. Hmm. And so we started digging in and reply actually was at the bleeding edge of a lot of interesting technology trends. And they had this philosophy of around you know, being at the leading edge of tech trends. Uh, and so, you know, for instance, they were the largest um, cloud uh, integrator in Europe at the time. Um, they had a, a big internet of things practice. They, and they also had this um, very disciplined backend where they were organized by various boutiques And so they were able to, and those, each boutique was sort of responsible for their own P&L and incentivized in a smart way based on their profitability. And so, and they were, so they were able to buy these small boutiques and plug them in to this larger entity and run them, basically take them to another level um, in, in these various categories like network security or iot or you know whatever tech trends you wanted to focus on um we did a lot of diligence on that one because you know when you think about tech you don't think about italy necessarily no Um, (laughs) but (laughs) but you know we did a lot of calls with former employees uh companies that they bought Uh, customers, and they really checked out as a really well-run practice. And, you know, I really like the IT services business. I think it's a way better business than a lot of people sort of recognize in the markets. Why is that? It's a very sticky business. Um, You know, we own a a company called Proficient right now. That's a digital IT outsourcing business. And, well, a lot of their projects are shorter term in nature. I think their average uh, length of their top 10 customers, their average tenure is close to a decade. Um, so there's this stickiness to the business. like if you're doing a project for a company, generally, you know once you get done with one project, you can once you do this you know cloud integration or Um, you know SAP integration or something like that you can sort of move on to the next project Um, or at least the good companies it's really a people driven business so if you have the right people and they're correctly incentivized it's it's a really good business and you have the tailwinds of you know the digitization of the economy and you know companies need to deploy software and things like that in their in their companies
0: right now those so those are some examples of stuff that went right were there any things that and you're starting out whether as an analyst or as a you know early early portfolio manager that didn't go well like let's say you know you just kind of not blew up but like an investment idea blew up or you know a company that you pitched on the long side blew up or even 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 the short side you pitched something on the short side and it blew up to the long side um, were there any lessons like that and if so what were kind of the main or any examples, and then if so, what were kind of the main lessons that you learned from those?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, anyone who's been in this business as long as I have has made so many mistakes, they, you know, it's sort of hard to- Pick which uh, one. Focus on which one. (laughs) Um, Let me give you some generalities of, you know, lessons I've learned that stuck with me the most. One lesson I've learned is even if um, a company is, you know, a a decent company underneath the CEO or CFO, if you find ethical issues at the CEO level, um, just don't, you don't want to be invested in that company. And I've learned that the hard way a few times. Yeah. Uh, and you can get fixated, I think, a lot of times on what's going on underneath the CEO level. And the CEO may not even be that involved with the operations of the company, like right. a holding company or something. But, you know, if there's an ethical issue, you discover just that, that's it. That's a no-go. Um, yep. And then I guess the other issues, like, for instance, we we invested in Michael Kors when it got really cheap. Um, I don't remember what year, maybe 2014 or 2015. Um, and it, it, it traded really cheap on current numbers, but you know, what we didn't recognize was the company was over distributing its, uh, product and Hmm. sort of saturating its brand. Um, so I've, I've basically had mixed. Um, I, I haven't had the highest hit rate when I tried to pursue something that has a style element to it, or there could be some kind of uh, consumer fickleness to it. And right. So, like a fashion trend, basically. Yeah, fas- fashion is really hard, right? It's notoriously yeah. hard. So I, I've um, learned that I'm no fashionista and I, uh, I need to stay away from, uh, businesses like that.
0: So, and specifically with Michael Kors, how did you, how did you find that they were, I guess what oversupplying, I think, I think you said oversaturating like a product or, 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 some type of thing. How did you go about that? I know that throughout your letters, um, and even throughout, you know, some of your process, you talk about day sales outstanding as almost a metric for trying to figure some of this stuff out, um but right. is, that, is, that, is that more of like an inventory level where you just see something wrong in in the balance sheet and then you cross-verify with other channel checks?
1: That can be a red flag for sure. I think at Michael Kors, it was more that they were over-distributing the product at retail, and it, so it didn't necessarily show up on their balance sheet. You had to sort of go out and go to macy's or go to you know um even like the off price guys like tj maxx and you, you'd see their products um being discounted and so that was the tip off ultimately um so we, we lost some money in that position but um we recognized it as a mistake quickly enough to sort of back out and yeah. um i think it's important that's also an important lesson to you know, once you make a decision on a company, you can't um, be dogged about your being right. You have to just continually do research and channel checks to to see whether um, your your initial thesis is playing out or not.
0: Yeah, and that's actually a great segue so into. A topic that I know you wanted to discuss is the importance of kind of walking away from a sector or a theme after you've made big money in it. And I want to go back to the emerging market wireless carrier theme because um, you, you know, you said that that's that's a theme that stuck with you both because of how much money you were able to make in that theme, but also the fact that you were able to walk away after making big money and 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 for others it's kind of hard so what do you mean by that when you say you know i had the ability to walk away from that theme after after i made my profits
1: yeah so um the wireless carriers um it it was fairly easy to see in that case and that you know you go from 20 percent to 90 percent penetration of the service um the growth outlook gets worse right but you know i've seen it like at my prior shop um the founder did really well in uh the commodity cycle He, he caught the commodity boom really well um and i think a lot of people when they make a lot of money in a certain business or sector or geography or you know whatever it is um they fall in love with that um strategy like i also know i know a guy who just crushed it during the housing crisis um shorting housing related companies and subprime lenders and things like that and but you know he stayed short biased like he still is to this day and that that hasn't you know been a good bet um it was a good bet for a couple of years right but if I, I think if you if you've made a lot of money in something uh you know a lot of times it's just because you caught a cycle right or you caught up yeah. um some trends that isn't gonna be, exist forever right and you i think there's you know a lot of Parallels to today's markets with, oh yeah, um, you know hyper growth companies that lack profitability and things like that. But um, that remains to be seen whether I'm correct about that.
0: Yeah, and I was actually just about to ask because it's a little bit you know off the off the off the outline here. But um, there are tremendous parallels because you were we've we've been in a market where people are rewarded for buying at higher prices than someone else and buying at new highs. And, and like, you know, when I'm on Twitter, all I see are these Momo investors tweeting their monthly returns that are through the roof. And you just wonder, you know, is this, are they actually that good or is it a product of the cycle they're in? And Mm -hmm. I think it's easier to make that comparison when it's a short, because if you're a short and like a perma bear, everybody knows what that means. It's the guy that's always pessimistic when everybody's optimistic, but I don't think many people see the danger of the opposite side of that, where if you're always optimistic, people aren't really as cautious as if you're just the bear in the corner of the room at the party saying, everything's going to go down.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, Look, I, I'm pretty balanced on this issue. I think a lot of the companies that have grown at huge rates are you know world beating companies. Um, but there's also a lot of um, you know I think the valuations today are partly a function of the fact that rates have been going down for a decade and that's driven, valuations up dramatically like i remember at gmt we used to marvel that workday was 10 times revenue um and imagine <laughs> imagine if it got that cheap right and uh and so now you look at some SaaS companies at 50 times sales and you're like how do you how do you even make the math work on this in any scenario um so you know a lot of these are good companies but that doesn't mean they'll be good stocks ultimately Mm. especially if interest rates i think a lot of people you know in these really high high multiples slash high growth companies are making the bet that the fed will the fed combined with the government will be unsuccessful in reinstating inflation um it's possible that that's true, but it, you know, I, I don't have a lot of conviction that that's true.
0: Do you think there's an element, and maybe this is just because I finished reading Terry Smith's book on growth investing, like his letters and stuff. Do you think that there's also an element of people using a long-term time horizon as a crutch or as an excuse for buying at high valuations when they can say, oh, well, if you just bought L'Oreal at 287 times earnings... You'd right. still make a six percent return. Do you think that you're seeing more of that? Because that's that's one of my bets: is people are taking every everybody's long everybody's time horizon is infinity when stocks are going up, right? But at some point they're going to go down, and you just wonder if that mindset of that long-term time horizon is going to get shrunk.
1: Right. I mean, if you bought Amazon during the internet bubble, and and you held throughout, right? Like you did yeah. great, but. The, the reality is you suffered a 90% drawdown and most people can't tolerate drawdowns like that in <laughs> a stock. Um, I guess some people can, but yeah. I, I have never met anyone who other than Jeff Bezos that has helped, you know, Amazon through the internet bubble. And, um, so yeah, I mean, I think, um, styles come and go and are at are cyclical in this business um, my prior shop was sort of more of a value a deep value shop um yeah. where the founder was more deep value i have a bit of a different style but um so you know i think he he crushed it during the commodity bubble and then um you know, hasn't done as well the last 10 years. Um, what the next 10 years looks like may be completely different than the last 10 years. And, it, and it actually right. it's probable that that's the case. Right. So. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And just to go off your comment of being able to withstand the, with, with those 90% drawdowns, there was a video that I found and it was, it was Shaquille O'Neal describing his investment in Google. And I think, the way he invested in Google is really the only way that you can invest in, in, in a company like that and live through the drawdowns. And he basically was at a dinner at a hotel and he overheard the founders of Google talking about their company. And Shaq was like, wait, what? (laughs) And he said, well, if Google can do all this stuff, then yeah, I'd love to invest. And he invested and he said, he completely forgot about it. And then like a few years later, he read about it in the news. And I think that's the only way that you can actually survive something like that.
1: Yeah, no, I mean the. Um, the concept of coffee can investing actually is an interesting one. Yeah. Um The the I forget the author's name. Um, he wrote hundred baggers. Um, Chris Mayer. Chris, yeah. He he talks a lot about the the coffee can approach, which I think is actually a very good approach for individual investors generally. Um, just by you know, enough that it's not going to destroy you if it collapses and then just never look at it again. I think that's, that's actually a very good approach for a lot of, uh, retail investors.
0: So let's kind of piece together the time between GMT, and then when you founded Blue Grotto. So, what was what was the catalyst for you to kind of go out on your own and start your own shop? I know you said that you had a little bit of a different philosophy or a different strategy than the founder at GMT. Um, what what made you ultimately decide to go out on your own? And then we can dive into how you think about businesses and strategy now at Blue Grotto.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, GMT was a great place to work. I was there over a decade. Right. And, um, it was a very successful fund while I was there. Um, the founder, uh, you know, is getting older and, um, there, there was some things at GMT that, um, were part of his process that fit his personality, but didn't necessarily fit my personality. For instance, uh, you know, they limited turnover. And their portfolio, um, mm-hmm. which I think has the benefit of, um, you know, eliminating overtrading, which is a good thing. But I've also found that you know when you figure out that you're wrong on something, you need to exit more quickly. Yeah. Um, you know the regressions that were used to um, run the long-short ratio. Um, I think those regressions work at extremes. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if, if your three standard deviations expensive or cheap in a sector or geography or, or the overall market, you should really pay attention to that, but using it as a blunt tool to determine your long short ratio just didn't, didn't sort of fit my personality, which it doesn't mean that um, it's a bad process, but it you know, it, it fit the founders' process more than myself. I also did a study of my returns at GMT and went through all the successes and mistakes, and went through this introspective process, and actually wrote my own investing book, which I never published. Um, which you're getting a lot of the um, concepts that we're talking about from. But yeah, um, so that was a good. Um, way of you know building up my conviction that you know i should i should go out out on my own i also had you know a net worth i think <laughs> i've seen a lot of people start hedge funds and they really don't have the rope to get from point a to point b and sort of make it a business but you know my net worth was enough that i could hire people you know, hires a a strong COO who, um, you know, took a lot of the operational stuff off my plate so I could just focus on investing, hire a couple analysts. Um, so just having that, um, just, just the capability to bridge the gap to getting to enough scale where, you know, the business was, um, generating profits, you know, I think that's, that's really hard in starting a new hedge fund. I also had, you know, a lot of experience at GMT, which I could use to market my funds. But yeah. um, at the end of the day, um, you know, having enough capital to see your way through, and also that conviction I gained from writing my book, I thought was, was instrumental.
0: Yeah, and uh, one of my one of my buddies, Brad Hathaway, who's been on has been on the show, he runs FarView. He said in the podcast that you should have or you should plan. I think this is true. I'm not you know I don't want to put words in mouth, but he said I think you should plan out for the pot or the the fund not making money for at least five years and making sure you've got that runway for five years, which I guess reverse engineers back to that net worth point that you made because you didn't really start out as a one man shop. I mean, you started out with a COO and a team of analysts. It sounds like.
1: Yeah, and so, you know, that, in a way, you know, that's a riskier strategy, especially <laughs> if you don't have the capital to back it up. Um, right, right. It got us to scale quicker than that five years. But if you were um, sort of less experienced or younger trying to start a fund, I imagine that's probably a good guideline Um and look, I mean, I think I was lucky to attract really good clients and get to a point where the business was profitable. But, um, you know, it, if, if I started the fund a year later during COVID, it would have been impossible for me to market, basically. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's a lot of luck involved in, in getting in getting to that sort of critical mass in this business.
0: Yeah. So at Blue Grotto now, maybe we can use a couple examples. And obviously, this is kind of how this this is this is both how you navigated COVID, which I think you did an excellent job doing um, both both hitting the COVID beneficiaries, and then as well as the vaccine reopening play beneficiaries on that side. But I also want to take this from an angle of getting your soup to nuts research process from idea generation, to then implementing into the portfolio and even discussing portfolio construction, which I know is a lot, but I think we can use these two ideas, which was Spectrum Brands and then Cedar Fair. So Spectrum was that retail COVID play, and then Cedar Fair was the was the vaccine beneficiaries. So let's just start with Spectrum Brands and then take us from soup to nuts, your investment process within Blue Grotto and how you identified that name.
1: Sure. Um, so Spectrum Brands is a conglomerate that um, it was a roll-up. That blew up a couple years ago, like three, going back three years ago, and the prior management team was uh, buying assets and not really operating them efficiently or or well, and so that sort of caught up to them. Um, if you fast forward to uh, 2020. Um, Actually, throughout 2019, uh, the company was sort of rebuilding its credibility, starting to, they hired a new COO that was operating uh, the businesses much better. Um, And so, you know, by the time they got to Q1 of 20, the businesses were actually uh, firing on all cylinders. Um, So Spectrum, taking a step back, Spectrum has a number of different businesses. Their biggest one is in locks and faucets. They primarily sell through Lowe's and Home Depot. Um, hmm. So they have 60% market share of uh, locks um, in the um, repair and remodel market. Um, they also have a, uh, a big pet care business. So they're the biggest uh, provider of um, pet treats for cats and dogs, and they sell, like, fish food and things like that. Um, and then, you know, they also have a, a lawn care business and sell things like bug spray and um, have, you know, kitchen a kitchen appliance business. Um, one thing we observed after the initial sort of shock of COVID was that Consumers were, well, first of all, we we bought Lowe's um, when it collapsed during COVID because we just made the simple observation that you know you'd go to the store and there'd be lines out the door. of It Lowe's was Home Depot. It
0: was it was absolutely insane. It was crazy. <laughs> um, so wait, where did you where did you buy Lowe's? Because something I'm always interested in that I go back and reverse engineer is like. If I look at some of these companies that collapsed during COVID, right. what I realize is like the multiples that you could buy these companies for were were crazy. So the one that I always kick myself for was not buying Cracker Barrel when it was at eight times earnings, right. During that during that crash. So where, where where were you buying Lowe's and what was I guess the implied the implied multiple or implied valuation at that time?
1: Well, we bought most of the Lowe's position under seventy. Um, wow. And. So you know we juxtaposed the idea that you know there's lines going out the door. meanwhile, Lowe's had collapsed to the multiple it was trading at in 08-09 during the housing crisis. yep, so those two factors made no sense to us whatsoever i mean i'm I'm shocked how much of a wimp and how much I bought at the time but um <laughs> because because you look back at that setup and it was crazy um but you know um so anyway so that our our initial observation post the covid crash was that people were spending a lot of money on um home furniture um any home related products which fit in spectrum brands um sort of wheelhouse um pet a lot of their businesses are sort of staple like businesses, right? Like um, pet, pet, um, pet shoes and things like that are right. uh, And and actually pet adoption had increased substantially because people are stuck in their houses. So
0: trust me, my fiance is dying to get a puppy. So (laughs) thanks COVID.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, and people were spending more on their home and garden. People were I mean, we we had other things we noticed, like um, bikes were selling out and um, you couldn't buy a dumbbell anywhere, right? Things like that. But so we looked for ways to express that. And we noticed that Spectrum's business was turning around pre-COVID. And we thought that all of their businesses were actually advantaged by COVID. Meanwhile, the stock was at you know when we first bought spectrum it was at a over 20 percent free cash flow yield on a trailing basis and we thought the business was going to get better um part of that was because the business was levered and went through this experience of you know not doing as well a couple years prior um but still you know the business was going to perform really well and you know, had these uh, tailwinds both from the management turnaround and COVID behavior, and was extremely cheap. Frankly, it's it's still cheap. You know, it's I was gonna to say to it's work. like
0: what 19 times, almost like a market multiple at this point, 19 times earnings.
1: Well, on yeah, on uh, on this year's numbers, it's 15 times earnings. Okay, so, and it's I'm using Trading View, so it might be wrong. Yeah, so it's a it's like a nine percent trailing free cash flow yield right now, right? Um, and you know that's after recovering substantially. So, yeah, that was the thought. Um, we so early on in COVID, we um, found these themes within consumer that were fairly obvious, but I didn't think were priced into the stocks. Um, and then as we sort of fast forward, um, as we got later into the year, we started looking out and saying, okay, you know, what do the comps look like for these companies when we get past COVID? What, you know, what what's, what are <laughs> Home Depot and Lowe's same store sales going to be like? Not pretty. <laughs> um, I actually think Spectrum uh, will do better partially because... Um, they actually had some um, hiccups in their supply chain that disrupted hmm. sales and earnings last year. So those won't recur this year. And also, you know, their, their operational turnaround, um, I think, should help. And they're also, um, you know, a lot of uh, their products are driven by the housing market. So, like, if you buy a lock, it's generally because you bought a new or existing home. And, um, so, you know, I think that has tailwinds going forward as well, because the housing, uh, market is very depressed, uh, in terms of, uh, new builds still. Right. Exactly. We still haven't recovered from the housing, housing bubble yet in terms of yes. su- supply added to the market. So, um, so anyway, uh, long aside there, but, um, so, as we got through to September and October, um, we were doing a lot of research on the potential for these vaccines to occur. Right. And we thought that, you know, if the market saw a path towards COVID going away, I mean, it, one way of thinking about COVID is it was like a very long, drawn out natural disaster. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the stocks that were the cheapest by September and October were um, the services businesses, which were completely bombed out, right? Like the businesses were at zero, basically, yeah. in the most cases. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we decided that, you know, probabilistically there was likely going to be a vaccine um, based on our research. And that would help the the services businesses, and there would be this huge pent up demand. Which, I mean, this is a common thesis now, right? That right there's gonna be this reopening trade, but back long in New York September, City and all that stuff. <laughs> right? Back in September and October, it wasn't very, um, it it wasn't consensus, right? Yeah. And even after the vaccines were announced, we scaled up our positions and a lot of these services businesses that we thought would have pent up demand. Mm -hmm. Um, So one of those is Cedar Fair, which is a business dear to my heart. I invested in it at uh, GMT. Um, They had to cut their dividend years ago um, because they got over levered and the stock got trashed. Um, But it's a really good, you know, the, the theme park business is Basically, like a regional monopoly like business. Right. Once you have one built, um, people will only travel unless you're Disney or Universal mm-hmm. or something. Like, people generally don't travel very far to go to a theme park. So, you know, if you have one uh, near Cleveland, Ohio, then, um, you know, that's the one you and, and you live in Ohio that's the one you'll go to and and we thought cedar fair was the best run of the um public amusement parks um and you know i grew up in ohio so i happened to to okay so yeah so this one's very near and dear to your heart yeah I, i knew the theme parks pretty well so yeah um so you know when we bought um cedar fair um originally it was trading at five times their normalized EBITDA um and you know that um was unlikely to sort of be sustained when the, the world sort of returned to normal and i i'd actually argue that um there's going to be huge demands to do almost anything as we get out of this because people have been yeah. kept in their homes so much yeah. that um they're going to want to get out and party so.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I personally hate amusement parks, so it's not surprising that I didn't find this one. But there's also an element of like not in my backyardism, which is I guess like uh, N Y M not N Y N I Y N Y M B Y. Dyslexic yeah. kicking in, but um, but you know, I guess I guess that's that that's also kind of an interesting crux of that thesis, right? So if you build a King's Dominion, you're not going to build another one right next to it. So when you've got that one right there, if it's not a Cedar fair, the competitor can't really take. And I'm sure that you can do like a square mileage hypothesis of like, all right, between this King's Dominion and the next X amount of square mile radius, there's well, not going to be a competitor.
1: The the reality is, is it, it costs a fortune to build out a new theme right. park. And right. And so building a Greenfield theme park is... Uh, like, I know they're doing it in a few places in Asia, but there hasn't been a Greenfield theme park in the U.S. for decades. So yeah. um, the cost, the, the return on capital would suck, basically. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's move on to shorting, which is an area that <laughs> I, I love and I loved even more when I started seeing people say like, you should abolish shorting or shorting shouldn't be allowed or, you know, all that stuff that you were seeing during, during the runup. I think, I think shorting has its place in markets and, you know, I do short more of a technical base because I think shorting fundamentals is a tough, lonely, depressing game um, depending on how you do it. But I want to get your take because in that, You know, in 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 some of that unpublished book that you wrote, you 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 dedicated an entire excerpt to shorting and you called it the dark art. So when did you first get into shorting and why have you stuck with it despite the fact that there's just these tremendous headwinds, even culturally, I guess, from a shorting perspective?
1: Yeah, well, um, you know, GMT Capital was actually um net short during the internet bubble. Um which Um, the founder has fun stories about, um, you know, it, so, you know, long, short funds have to short, um, and the, the, the concept of shorting, the, the whole idea is if you're a really good short seller, I've found during bull markets, you can roughly break even, um, But for instance, like in March of last year. Yeah. um, If you had a short book and and you did well, you created a lot of capital that you could use to do things like buy lows when it was really depressed. Exactly. Right. You didn't have, if you weren't short anything, I mean, there's other ways you can approach it too, right? Like you could just run with cash. I view shorting as like having like very, a, a very aggressive stance of, um, you know, protecting capital when markets are down and creating capital that you could use to hmm. redeploy on the long side when markets rebound. Um, yeah. And so um, it actually took me a lot longer to become a good short seller. And, um, as an analyst at GMT, um, I had some successful shorts, but I think it took me five years of doing it professionally to get wow. actually good at it. Um, what but, What
0: about it took you that long?
1: Well, it's it, especially in a bull market, it's really hard to be short, right? I mean, stocks yeah. generally go up. The average stock goes up 8%, and probably more than that in a... Some would in say they market.
0: always go up.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I wouldn't go that far. But um, it, I, it, if I thought that, then I, I, uh, I wouldn't be a short seller. But yeah. um, so anyway, I think um, the purpose of shorting is to create cash for in down markets, and you know, if you if you think about the math behind compounding when you have big drawdowns um just the mathematics of that um you have to make up substantially more than your drawdown to get back yeah and so if you if you run an effective short book um you know that that math becomes less challenging
0: right so like a 50 percent drawdown you need a hundred percent gain to get back to break
1: even right exactly and uh you know, um, we were able, like, for instance, at the end of, uh, or at the beginning of COVID, we were able to short a lot of companies that were going to get hurt by COVID, right? We shorted, um, a couple levered airlines. We shorted the most levered hotel REITs. We shorted the cruise lines. We shorted the most levered restaurants. And that was, um, you know, a way we protected capital through March um, and were able to, you know, get to the other side of that crisis without getting hurt.
0: Now, when you do short as a, as a generality, do you just do the, excuse me, do you just do like the short, short, the equity? Do you do any sort of like put spreads or stuff like that? Have you, have you played around with different strategies and then found one that works for you?
1: We just are out, We just outright short the stock. We don't play around with options. Um, so that's that's our strategy.
0: Got it. I think the great a great example of a short idea is the orthopedics company. Pediatrics. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Kids. Um, just because you know, reading reading your outline of the short thesis, it it it's it's so compelling. It makes me wonder why anyone decides to go long. Um, yeah. maybe that's maybe that's my naivety and not being able to see a bull case for it but walk us through on a, on a on a high level here how you found the idea and why it's why it's a great short for you know really really getting to the weeds here about you know some of its some of its problems with like its inventory and sales and some related party stuff and all that jazz
1: yeah so orthopediatrics is a producer of implants screws and other sort of bone related Products for children. They primarily sell into orthopediatric uh, hospitals, um, and so they've penetrated two thirds of p- pediatric hospitals at this point. So I think it doesn't really have a big room to grow. Its TAM is part of the thesis, but the reason we got to orthopediatrics is one of our screens we look for is, you know, working capital. Um, getting way worse vis-a-vis sales and orthopediatrics has three and a half years of inventory on its balance sheet right now Um, which is kind of crazy and so you know and they're um, so they're burning a lot of cash we as we found uh, as we looked at their balance sheet uh, we started doing Uh, calls with customers and suppliers this is part of the way we build a mosaic on a company yep and we spoke to one supplier who said oh yeah my boss his uh he has he has inventory piled up in his living room uh he (laughs) has tons of orthopediatrics inventory just piled up in his living room as you do Uh, (laughs) uh so it's pretty clear they're stuffing the channel in the latest quarter um they wrote off a, a, I think it was 2.7 million in inventory in europe uh, which isn't even that big of a business so it's very clear the company's s- stuffing the channel um also what's bizarre about this one usually when you have a company that um has such bad working capital issues. It usually trades cheaply, but this one's at 12 times revenue currently um, for a business that has negative profitability um, and huge negative cash flow uh, throughout its life. Um, yeah. And then I guess the third part of the thesis is there's these crazy related party transactions the company's doing with its main shareholder squadron capital and um you know i think part of the reason probably why the stock is where it is is because um you know squadron is um the puppet master here if you will but um right just you to know, say they... it lightly <laughs> But, you know, they've, they've bought and sold businesses between Squadron. Uh, Squadron has an arm that does manufacturing at below cost for orthopediatrics. So there's all kinds of problems with this company and it's overvalued. And, you know, it's not even really that good of a growth business even prior to all that. So, right.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it also reminds me have you looked at uh Coke Coca-Cola Consolidated as a short idea?
1: Yeah, the CEO there's um <laughs> interesting guy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I saw I saw something this morning where there's like so many related parties where like some daughter of the chief executives getting paid eight hundred thousand dollars for just who knows what? Um, and I guess you know this, this. This this falls under going way back to the beginning of the conversation. This idea of ethics in top management, where if you see something that's sketchier, you know, if you if you if you see something that smells, then you know maybe 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 don't get out. Maybe you actually maybe that becomes a good short idea.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's some, one of the things we look for is um, manage unethical management teams that are making. Unsustainable or un, um, you know, subs, unsubstantiated claims about a company, um, and there's more of that now than I've ever seen in the markets. I mean, it's a it's a promoter's dream market where yeah. you can almost get away with anything right now. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy.
0: Now, with a with a, with a short idea, this let's say you've got high conviction on a short idea how do you go about position sizing that thing? Do you use stops? Do you use any sort of, you know, metrics like that? Or how do you, how do you keep yourself from sizing too big and then blowing up on a short?
1: Yeah. I mean, we generally are much smaller in our shorts. So like our average long position, we try to get to at least 5% and our average short, we try to get to around 2%. uh, So just being more diversified on the short side is a, Is sort of the first step in risk management. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing we do—I mean, actually, if you think about it, the last year has been a, especially if you're a short seller. Well, pre—you know, going into March, it was if you're on the long side, and then after March, (laughs) the risk management, (laughs) risk management on the short side's been um, incredibly necessary. and you have these, you, you also have a lot of um, different um, influences on markets that we haven't seen before, like indexing, right? driving sort of indiscriminate buying of stocks that, you know, where their prices don't really make any sense. Um, so I think the, the area you see this the most right now is in. Uh, alternative energy. They're these alternative energy ETFs, and they're buying these horrible companies at insane multiples right now. (laughs) But, you know, if, 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 if you're a passive investor and you invest in TAN or, you know, one of these other alternative energy ETFs, they're just buying really bad companies at crazy prices and doing it price indiscriminate so yeah
0: it's almost the exact inverse of what you look for in a i guess a long idea is 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 the is the indiscriminate selling we're now on the short side i guess you've got the indiscriminate buying but but at the same time like that hurts you more being a short the indiscriminate buying because that short becomes now a larger and larger percentage of that portfolio
1: yeah and that goes back to my comment about risk management and that um Sometimes a stock will trade completely um, different than you think it should, and when, mm-hmm. and that's sort of a good alarm, if you will, that yeah, um, there's something going on that you didn't recognize, and and sometimes it can be things like flows or, um, you know, non-fundamental things, and so, you know that's usually a judgment call and you just have to be willing to take a take off a short if if the thesis is inconsistent with the way the stock is acting
0: yeah yeah because then that's that's where people really got in trouble with tesla where you could justify that you were right on the thesis the underlying thesis but the, the price didn't matter the price just kept going higher
1: right no i mean i think the tesla shareholder base is a it's kind of like the people who own bitcoin right it's like that they think buy and never sell and so that drives sort of weird stock behavior that you wouldn't see in other stocks and in general i would say i try not to short cult stocks because of that yeah and tesla is a cult stock
0: right well you also have kathy wood going out with her price targets which are just you know fuel to the fodder for these for these cult-like believers
1: yeah i mean if you have a cult stock generally um the behavior of the stock is way more ebullient than you would expect based on actual fundamentals
0: so yeah but hey, if it goes three thousand, good for Kathy. <laughs> I want to I want to circle back to this idea of waiting for the stars to align, and it's kind of you know this this amalgamation of finding asymmetry in valuation, which we discussed. You know, we 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 hinted at a little bit in the COVID crisis where you were finding lows at you know these crazy cheap earnings, Cedar Fair at these crazy implied free cash flow yields. So you're finding this asymmetry in valuation, and then you've got you know. Capital allocation, which is portfolio management, kind of understanding how a portfolio structures work, and then the the last part is optionality and themes. And in in that excerpt within this this section, you walk through an example of uh, VMware in 2016 as kind of a as as a, as a great example of this waiting for the stars to align. And so I think this is kind of a great point to you know slowly slowly end end the conversation on just. The, the full scope of, of what you realized from your time at GMT and how that all culminated in kind of this one idea. So what made VMware this perfect, you know, stars aligned investment?
1: Yeah, so I've been following, um, you know, software and tech and um, in particular VMware. It came public in 2007 and it was extremely expensive at that time uh because it was you know a new market um they were pioneering uh server virtualization which had lower penetration at the time uh, which sort of justified the valuation but um so really good company always too expensive for me um you know as an aside um one thing that gave me conviction when we eventually did buy VMware was um, you learn by following software companies that even the worst software companies generally bottom at two times EV to sales. Hmm. Um, That's a general rule of thumb that I've noticed. Um, But anyway, um, so, you know, we were doing channel checks on various companies like Citrix, LogMeIn, VMware um, through the years and um, we get to 2016 uh, sort of late 2015 early 2016 and VMware crashes the stock goes yep. from you know 90 to the low 40s um yep.
0: they get bottom ticked 43 14 or something like that
1: yeah so as the stock is crashing, we had been doing channel checks all along on the space and building this mosaic. I mean, mainly we were researching, uh, at the time, we were researching PC PC, and mobile virtualization, which was an interesting topic at the time. Um, and the checks we had done suggested that AirWatch, uh, VMware's product, was actually the best product in the market at the time. Hmm. Um so anyway the stock crashes um and it got down to two times ev to sales. Um so we start doing a fury of work on VMware. Um what we found, you know, the stock was also at six times ev to free cash flow. The the negative at the time was that server virtualization revenue had started to decline, and part of this was just that vSphere, their server virtualization product, was more mature. Um, but there was also a negative cycle going on in storage and data center spend, and people worried about the the public cloud, uh, i.e., AWS, taking share from traditional data centers. So. Um, Wall Street, as it likes to do, overreacted to that. And, um, but we did a lot of calls with the customers of the company. And while vSphere people were kind of lukewarm on, um, you know, VMware had um, a network virtualization product called NSX that was growing bookings over 100%. Right. Uh, they had AirWatch which was the market leader in mobile PC virtualization. They had the leading uh, storage virtualization product, vSAN. Um, and that was growing like 150% or something like that. So when you did the math, um, vSphere in a year was gonna be less than 50% of their revenue. And you had these you know, hyper growth Products that had huge optionality around them um, that we thought would cause the overall company to grow despite, you know, we even if you assumed vSphere declined double digits for years, which would be right. fairly unprecedented in the history of uh, data center software products. So, yeah. you know, for instance, we, we, we drew the analogy at the time to CA, um, which is a super mature um, software products but you know they were able to grow single digits pretty consistently despite being sort of hated and being in mainframes and things like this so you know we thought um the addition the other products growing so fast and every customer we spoke to said oh yeah we're growing our overall spend with vmware double digits which was completely inconsistent with the, the narrative on the stock. Exactly. So that's what we like to hear. That's, I think, a, a great setup is when you're talking to people in a business and they're super positive and Wall Street super negative or vice versa on the short side. Right? Correct, yeah. That can be a great setup where you have a really asymmetric, um, differentiated view. And at six times EV to free cash flow. At the time we were going out four years and we had VMware trading in cash at the current price. Um that's crazy. So <laughs> so that so that that's why I mentioned it in my book excerpt. I think it was one of the most asymmetric opportunities I've ever seen. Yeah. Obviously the stock went from, you know, the forties to 200 um still a good company um pat gelsinger was also one of the best ceos i've ever uh, met and had a a dialogue with um interestingly he just went to intel to turn around intel but um so you know you had a great everything aligned you had a a really good business a software right is um, really high cash flow to capex business you had an outlook that was very differentiated from where wall street was and you had these other fast growth businesses potentially eclipsing the the issues at vSphere and by the way vSphere started growing again in like two quarters so that's
0: like cherry on top right there right I mean, that's and just we free, got, free we got lucky
1: yeah I think we got lucky there because that yeah. wasn't part of our thesis but Um, so, you know, that, that's what we look for, a really high quality company that, um, gets out of favor for some temporary reason. And, you know, it has very strong underpinning in the valuation. And that's, that was one of the best setups I've seen. Yeah.
0: And you've, you've, you've mentioned this word mosaic a few times, and maybe we can just press into that a little bit more. When you say mosaic, cuz what i'm thinking and correct me if i'm wrong but what i'm thinking is like with these ideas like let's take vmware for instance my my thinking is that you pick like some sort of theme some sort of industry some sort of sector try to develop a mosaic of it where it's like okay what are the best companies in here you know what 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 do they do all that stuff and then you develop the mosaic and then and then you just wait and you identify the companies that you would want to invest in at if, if, if they ever got cheap enough. And then you just wait until like a 2016 where the stock got cheap enough. And then you said, okay, well now, now we got to do it. Um, is it, is it. Is it like that or is it more serendipitous, this, this, this mosaic generation? Because, and the only reason I ask that is when that stock dove and like what we saw in COVID, you don't have the time to do all of that mosaic developing. Right. when 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 the prices is, is 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 that low so kind of walk us through I guess what a mosaic means and 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 how you think about developing mosaics
1: yeah so the the concept of a mosaic um, the way I think about it is you're just learning about industries or businesses constantly and doing constant research so if you really like a business or dislike a business for for that matter you um, you're just constantly reading, like, you can read trade rags about it, you can read um, just Wall Street equity research, you can read, um, you can speak with the management teams at companies, you can go to trade shows, we do a lot of trade shows in our research, Um, and we're, we're trying to get an understanding of sort of what makes a business tick, and what what the main drivers are, who the best players, who the best companies are in business, who have who have the most advantaged business models. And then, you know, ultimately you're waiting for a price where you can't lose in in mm. the stock of those advantaged companies, right? Yep. Or on the short side you're looking for situations where, you know, at that price you know, the stock going up makes no sense, right? Um, That doesn't mean the stock won't go further uh, (laughs) vis-a-vis that asymmetric view. I like when we talked about Smurf at Kappa, um, before we got paid on that investment, it went from eight to four, right? Uh, A stock that gets really cheap can get way cheaper. Yeah. Um, but you're trying to line it up so that as long as you have staying power in, this, in the stock, you know, y- you'll make money. Um, and part of lining up asymmetry is building up that understanding of the business and industry and knowing, okay, like Smurfit Kappa has got this integrated business model. They're the best player in the space. They have very stable margins. And, you know, the other players are trying to convert paper plants and things like that that are sort of less sustainable. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you're, you're building up this knowledge. And since I've been in this business for uh, since 2001 <laughs> now, um, you know, I've learned a lot of different industries and companies and so you 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 build up this repertoire over time of companies you understand oh um you know microchip is a really good company because they have this um very um spread out uh customer industrial customer base and they have a very low asp and so you know the the switching costs are really high They've been gaining share in microcontrollers. You you build up all these little things that you understand. And over time, that culminates in something clicking for you. Mm -hmm. And and that's part of what I talked about when I talked about being creative. Part of that is just constantly being in the weeds on businesses and understanding what makes them tick. And then you develop creativity around Sort of what's happening in a business
0: Hmm. it's kind of like to use a sports analogy i guess if you if you develop better skill and better better talent at a game call it you know tennis or basketball that skill and that talent then you know begets your ability to get more creative on the court. So for instance, LeBron James can do things creatively that other players simply can't because he's got more skill and more talent. And I guess you can say, you know, genetics and for investing, I guess we can put, you know, genetics and luck kind of in that same lockstep there. But it's, it's an interesting model because the more you learn, like you said, the more you develop this mosaic, the more you can see, which allows you then to be more creative than the next investor.
1: Yeah. It's building up a a knowledge base that helps you get to a place where you're recognizing patterns and pattern recognition is one of the best and most important skill sets in investing and you will only get that by being constantly intellectually curious about industries and businesses and just getting getting immersed in what's happening. If you've, if you went to the solar trade show for 10 years in a row, my guess is you're going to find something to do in solar during yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, it's really about just immersing yourself in the business and that, and that's why we yeah. have two analysts here to, to help me do that. And, you know, just sort of multiply my capability to, to generate, um, situations where a pattern really sinks in and we figure out something's asymmetric
0: do you ever find yourself struggling with maybe trying or seeing a pattern that actually isn't there because of some you know whether whether it's a bias that you want something to work because humans we're we're very pattern recognition sometimes we'll try to see patterns and things that aren't there so do you ever find yourself in those types of situations or if not, um, then maybe maybe why not?
1: Well, if I said I didn't, that would mean I didn't make any mistakes, and I definitely make mistakes. Um, I think the best investors have a 70% hit rate, and actually that's been historically been my hit rate on investing, but that means 30% of the time I'm wrong.
0: Yeah, but 70% um, is pretty damn good. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean, actually some, and by the way, like some people will disagree, disagree with me on that 70% hit rate. Like there's investors that can have a 30% hit rate, but have a huge slugging percentage, right? Exactly. You know, yeah. And that you can win that way as well. Everyone's yeah. process is different, but, um, but, but my point is that, you know, 30% of the time, time I'm wrong. And, you know, sometimes that's, I mean, the the world. it's impossible to predict the future completely, right? And that's what you're trying to do in investing to some degree. Yeah. And so there's a lot of luck involved with that as well. Um, But what you're trying to do is make a probabilistic bet ultimately that means you're probabilistically going to be right, right? in my case, I would say seven times out of 10.
0: Got it. I love that. I love that. And this kind of gets us to the last last few questions that I have here just about, you know, development and, and personal development, because like you said, you started in 2001. Um, you had tremendous success at GMT. You've done well at Blue Grotto. Um, I mean, seven out of 10 hit rate that's, that's not bad. I think Soros said that, I I think, I I think it was Soros that said like you could do three out of 10, as long as you're, as long as you've got very high, highly asymmetric wins. Um, So as investors, we're always trying to evolve. Like you said, learn, get better, adapt. What are some areas of weakness that you want to improve on in your investing process, whether it's from a philosophical perspective, a psych, a psychological perspective, what are, what are some things you want to improve on over the course of this
1: year? My worst weakness, uh, I think is lack of patience. Hmm. Um, in investing, you really have to be patient and let whatever, um, probabilistic bet you made, let that play out. Um, time is your, is your sort of biggest advantage as an investor. Uh, but, you know, um, that requires patience, and it's something I'm constantly working on. And, um, you know, I, I generally want to make be making money, like, immediately in something, which is un- <laughs> unrealistic. I think everybody
0: does. I mean, I think everybody yeah. does to an extent.
1: Right. Um, some people are, are, are more willing to sort of ride out bets than... And I think, look, I think it's a balancing act too, right? Like you can't be wrong consistently in a in a stock or in a group of stocks or what have you, and just just continue being wrong, right? Like there's this balancing act between patience and stubbornness. Um, that is, it's hard to get right. Um, yeah. So I, I I guess I would err my personality errs more on the side of not being patient enough. And I recognize that in my um, just cycle psych- psychology. And I try to do things to um, sort of counteract that, if you will.
0: What are, what are some practices that you've done to counteract that lack of patience?
1: Um, just, just forcing myself not to, get out of positions for hmm. time, time periods and um but you know um yeah i think things like just not watching the tape every day for yeah, instance that's <laughs> like a, just, that
0: that's a big one
1: <laughs> just not watching the market uh, as much and just focusing on your research and and sort of what you can control and stock prices are hard to control. And, you know, the market's gotten crazier and crazier the past year and a half, if you will. Oh, yeah. Volatility is higher. So I think just turning off your screen. I, I meditate periodically. I mean, that's that's a way to just dull the noise in your head and not be so reactive. So things like that.
0: Got it. What are some industries or businesses that you'd like to get a better understanding or have a, have a deeper knowledge base on?
1: We're doing a lot of research on um, semi-cap equipment right now. Um, And actually uh, semiconductor packaging, I think is an interesting area. Hmm. Um, As Moore's law sort of gets slower, if you will, the semi, in order to improve performance and lower cost, semiconductor companies are gonna have to do different things than sort of what they've done in the past. I like you can't just shrink nanometers constantly going (laughs) forward. (laughs) So things like packaging and things like, um, you know, just manufacturing more efficiently or better um, have a bigger impact. And so I think that's an interesting area. Combined with we've gone through this two-year down cycle in semiconductors, and um, you know it's a secular growth area, and there's been huge consolidation in the semiconductor sector. So all of those things combined, uh, to me, suggests that there's a lot of opportunity there.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to check that out. I mean, I know we're we're long uh micron and intel from uh from the pure semi-space but we haven't necessarily looked into those packaging companies but i like that theme
1: yeah no we're we're, we own uh microchips and uh amat right now and amat's sort of a i would argue a higher quality way of playing the memory cycle um maybe a less volatile but sort of through the cycle, higher profitability kind of methodology for investing in memory.
0: Got it. All right. So if people want to learn more about Ben Gordon, how can they find you? How can they contact you if you even want people to contact you?
1: (laughs) Yeah, look, we have a website. um, I think it's bluegrottocapital.com. People can reach out through that. Um, Yeah, I'm, I'm not as available in other um, like on social media or anything unless you happen to grow up with me or something. But um, yeah, so the website's probably the best way.
0: Got it. And then the last question that I ask every guest, which I hope you've prepared for because <laughs> yeah, I get I get a mix. People are always like, I read it and I didn't think about it and then other people are like, I didn't even read that far. So if yeah. you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, whom would it be and why?
1: yeah i mean i came up with I, I actually it's an incredibly hard question because i could come up with like 50 people i'd love right. to <laughs> <laughs> maybe Don't just a like, round
0: table dinner right. family gathering
1: style so i'll give you a, a live one and i'll give you a dead one. Um, perfect so um my live one is Jermaine from flight of the concords um because i think he's hilarious and is, is that a movie i haven't seen that it's a show on hbo and they're okay. like remain and brett who are like a band and they have this um mock show on hbo and uh he's a hilarious guy from new zealand um so <laughs> that would be my live <laughs> one um and then uh i guess my dead one would probably be ernest hemingway Um, oh
0: i like that one no one said that name before
1: he's uh he's my favorite writer and he also went through all these experiences in uh world wars that and and generally in wars that i find fascinating i'm a big war buff uh so i've read a lot of books about world war one and world war two and um So I think he'd be an an interesting person to meet and I'd love to pick his brain about uh, writing because he's the best, most succinct writer I've ever read.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't even know where you would start on a conversation with (laughs) Ernest (laughs) Hemingway. That's crazy. Well, Ben, this has been so much fun. I'm so glad we got to make this work. Um, I know that my listeners are going to get a lot out of this um, and I hope that you have continued success at Blue Grotto and I wish you the best of luck.
1: Appreciate it. Thanks.